through the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we are going to look at exposing doctrines of demons. Years ago, I was listening to Walter Martin, and if you don't know who he is, he was the original Bible answer man before Hank Hanegraaff. He has since died and gone to be with the Lord. He told a story, a story that really impacted me. At that time, I had been involved in Seventh-day Adventism for a while, and I was coming to realize some of the errors just from reading Galatians and Romans over and over again. And He told a story about a woman who had a newborn child, and they were taking a trip on a train for the first time. It was nighttime, it was the dead of winter, the wind outside was bitterly cold, and it was snowing hard. And as she boarded the train, the the conductor could see that she was nervous and a little uptight, having never traveled before by train. And he talked to her and said, is everything okay? She said, yes, I've just never been on a train before, and I don't, you know, I want to make sure I get up at the right spot. And he assured her and said... Uh, ma'am, I will come back. Personally, I will, will make sure you get off at the right spot. Well, sitting across the aisle, there was a man who had heard all this. And when the conductor left, he leaned over and said, Excuse me, I, I just want you to know that I travel on the train almost every day. And I know this route like the back of my hand. And uh, the place you want to get off is three stops away and... If the conductor forgets, I'll make sure you get off. And then they struck up a nice conversation and began to chat and share things about their lives and their family. Well, after several stops, the man told her, well, the next stop will be yours. And uh, he says, I get off on the stop after that. And soon the train started to slow down. It finally came to a stop and he got the woman up, helped her with her things and said, okay, this is it. You can get off here. Just walk straight away and you'll see the the train depot where you can be warm and safe until someone comes to get you. The train started up again and after a while it rolled to the next place and started to slow down. At that time the conductor showed up and said, where is the woman and her child? He said, oh, I helped her get off at the last stop. And at that, the man's face turned pale. He said, that was an emergency stop. There was a branch caught in the front guard and we had to stop to remove it. You had that woman and her child get out in the middle of nowhere. They got the train started, backed up as fast as they could, but it was snowing so hard they couldn't find where they had stopped. And it wasn't until the next morning that the woman and her child were found both frozen to death. Now that story is a perfect illustration of a truth that we are seeing in this text before us. That false information can be deadly even when it is given by well-intentioned people who are thoroughly convinced that they are right. And nowhere else is this more true than when it comes to knowing what the Bible says about salvation and being made right with God. We have been looking at a very serious and sobering part of 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 
which tells us that we need to be on guard because there are dangerous things and these dangerous things are in the church. And so if you have your Bible, let's look at some of these dangerous things. Follow along as I read 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. Now from this text already we have learned three important truths, haven't we? We have already learned that you must be on guard against apostasy. Apostasy is when a person comes into the church, maybe hears the gospel, uh, professes to know Christ, seems to get involved, learns the gospel, hears the gospel, see people's lives being transformed by the gospel, and then turns his back and walks away and seals their eternal doom. Secondly, we learn from the text that you must be on guard against doctrines of demons. And the reason we are to be on guard against doctrines of demons is that the text tells us that they are the reason some fall away from the faith. That is, some people pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They get fed up with the truth because they believe a lie and they depart. Third, we have learned you must be on guard against the peddlers of demonic doctrines. Demons don't materialize, they don't show themselves and say, Hi, I want to tell you a lie. Instead, they deceive men who then promote their doctrines. All false doctrine, doctrines are doctrines of demons. And the text describes these false teachers, these peddlers of demonic doctrines as hypocritical lie speakers seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. For sure, some are sincerely deceived. They peddle the doctrines unknowingly. Others, the ones mentioned in this text, know they're teaching error. They know they're leading people astray. They are two-faced lie speakers. And they come into the church in order to spread their destructive lies. And when their conscience tries to call out to them to warn them that this is wrong, they don't hear it because it's seared over, scarred over as with a branding iron. Well, it is in verse 3 and 5 that the text gives us this portrait of two different doctrines of demons. And it's so, I'm so glad that Paul included the, these. He just didn't say, watch out for them. He gives us examples here. But before we look at the text, there are some things we need to do first. The first thing we need to do is keep this in mind. Now think about this. So often we think that demonic doctrines and doctrines of demons are, 
are propagated by cults and occult people, you know, people who stay up at midnight and sacrifice cats in their basement and chant to Satan or people who get little dolls and stick needles in them or, or things like that. We kind of, doctrines of demons are, you know, outwardly satanic things that uh, obviously are not right and those things happen in other places in other religious groups in different parts of the country. But what we need to come to grips with is this, that the doctrines of demons, especially those talking, talked of here, spoken of here, are those which arise from within the church, from those who say they are Christians, who say they believe in Christ. They deceive others who, with good intentions, pass on these errors. Now, before we get into the text, there is something else that you need to understand, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. And that is this. This is a very important concept. The means of salvation is always the same as the means of sanctification. In other words, the way a person gets saved always matches the way they progress in holiness before God. That is an important point because when we look at these doctrines, they are in a direct attack on what I just told you. You see, many Christians are confused about sanctification. Sanctification is basically being made holy. Hagiasmos is the Greek word, and it comes from hagias, holy. And the saints, as you see, a popular name for Christians in the New Testament, is hagias, holy ones. We are called holy ones. And we are called to be sanctified. We are called to progress in righteousness. But even though we are saints, holy ones in identity, and even though we are called to be sanctified, there's this paradox and anomaly. It's kind of like a wet bar of soap that people just can't quite get a grasp on. And let me just explain to you. There are some who know that the Bible says that when I place my faith in Christ... Jesus' righteousness was given to me, imputed to me, and I am perfectly holy and just before God. And we know that. We know that we have all of our sins forgiven. We know that we have been justified. And to be justified is to be declared righteous because all of your sin and guilt were placed on Christ and His perfect righteousness because He suffered in your place was by substitution given to you so that God can declare you to be just in His sight through what Jesus did. And we know that. But there's this problem. And that is, is we're told to obey. We're told to be sanctified. And in our minds, we're thinking, wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second here. How, are we sanctified or not? Have we been made holy 
Or are we getting there? What do we need to do? Do we need to do anything? Well, if salvation is by grace and sanctification is by grace, then what do I do? Do I just lay on the couch and wait till God changes me? Well, if you lay there long enough, He will. You'll be glorified if you lay there long enough. So what, what do we do? What, what, is the, what is the answer to this dilemma? If I go out there and I try and obey God, am I trying to be sanctified by works? How does this all work? Well, I, this morning I want to give you a little crash course on sanctification by grace. And the reason I want to give you this is because if you don't know this, the text is very difficult to understand. I mean the real impact of the message that Paul is trying to communicate. You can't really understand the hellishness of forbidding people to abstain from marriage and abstain from foods if you don't understand how one is sanctified in Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is give you seven key characteristics related to the process of sanctification in a believer's life, and then later we'll get into the text and see why these are in a direct attack on sanctification by grace. Now the first thing we need to know, which we've mentioned already, is salvation is by grace through faith, isn't it? I mean, we know that by placing our faith in Christ, we receive eternal life. In John 3.16, now whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. We know we are saved by grace, through faith, and not, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one should boast. We know that He did not save us by deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. And on and on and on. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We aren't good enough. We aren't righteous enough. All our deeds are but filthy rags in God's sight. We are spiritually dead. We are hostile to God. We're running on the other way. We love darkness rather than light, for our deeds are evil. And then God, by His grace, reaches down. He begins to draw us to Himself. He begins to open our hearts to the truth. He brings us into a situation where we can hear the gospel, and then we believe and are saved by His grace and grace alone. So that is the first thing you need to know about sanctification by grace is that it starts with salvation by grace. The second thing we must understand is that God is the one who sanctifies us and that when we are saved, He sanctifies us completely. By substitution, Christ took our sin, which made us unsanctified, and applied His righteousness, which makes us holy in God's sight. And this is why the Scriptures teach that a believers have been sanctified. Listen to this. This is Paul in Acts 20, speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he's finishing up his little discussion. And notice what he says, Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God in the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Who are sanctified. Not will be, not should be, not are getting there, but who are. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, after he mentions all of these sins that the various Corinthian believers were entrenched in, but now had escaped from, he says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified 
But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Notice Paul says, you were sanctified. At a point in time, you became sanctified. In Hebrews 13, 12, speaking of Christ, it says this, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, who is doing the sanctifying there? Us? No. Jesus gave his life that he might sanctify us. He is the sanctifier. In Leviticus, several times, it says, I am the Lord who sanctifies These texts and many others teach us that sanctification is by grace, that it is an act of God and something God does, not us. And that we are, as believers, sanctified in Christ, made holy, set apart from sin unto obedience to God. Now the third thing we need to understand about sanctification is this, that sanctification is also a process. And this is where people start tilting their head like those puppies who don't know what you're saying when you talk to them. You start talking to the little puppy and they do this. Because they don't understand English. But we talk to them like we hope they do. And a lot of people, when you say, okay, you need to practice sanctification, you need to become sanctified, you need to pursue sanctification, and all of a sudden, in their minds, they go into this... this thing where they're thinking, wait a second here, wait, 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 wait. Some of the verses, like the ones we just read, come to mind. I thought, I thought, I, I thought I'm righteous in Christ. I, I thought if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Why are you telling me to, to do this and do that and obey this and obey that? Isn't that legalism? Well, first let's see what the Scriptures say. 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is what Paul says, just listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see what he's saying there? As we study the Word of God, as we look into the Scriptures, it's like we're looking into a mirror where we see our flaws. And that, that Word of God that we look into is that which changes us by stages that we are being transformed. We haven't got there yet. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Now listen to this. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What? What do you mean perfecting holiness? I thought we were holy. I thought we're saints, holy ones. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Not only pursue peace, but pursue sanctification, because without it, no one's going to see the Lord. Now, there are many other verses like this, which teach us we are to obey God, we are to to pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. And this is where the problem comes in, because people on their heads are trying to figure this out. And I tried to think of a clear, easy way to explain this, and hopefully when you leave here today, you'll not be too confused. Now, 
positionally in Christ, when you become a believer, positionally in Christ, you are made holy, you become a holy one. You are saved, you are justified, redeemed, adopted in the family of God, seated in the heavenly places, and on and on and on. But just think about your life. Do you ever sin? Well, yeah. Do you ever disobey God? Yes. Do you ever think things that are wrong? Sure. So how is that? I thought I was holy. Well, that's true. You are. But I'm a sinner. That's right. But I have Christ's righteousness given to me. Yes. But I still sin. You got it. And see, people have a problem. They're thinking, no, I just don't understand this. I don't understand this. Well, this is what you need to understand. That the scriptures teach between salvation and glorification when we go to be with the Lord, we enter a process of sanctification by which we try to mortify or kill those fleshly desires that are within us. We try and put them to death. We try and constantly being, being renewed by the Word of God so that that Word can transform us and change us from one glory to the next. And that is the point of confusion because a lot of people don't know if they are doing things in the flesh or not doing things in the flesh. Now how do we grow in this sanctification without works if we have to work to do it? That is the key. That is the, the crux of the problem. And this brings us to the fourth key characteristic of being sanctified by grace, and that's this. You are sanctified by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I preached on this a while back. If you need more information, you can call the office and we'll get you the tape. But let me just tell you this in just a nutshell. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? God gives us the Spirit. When, when we place our faith in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. It's inside of us. Now, some of you at home have, have weightlifting equipment, treadmills, stationary bicycles, so that you can be in shape. The problem is, is, a lot of us don't use them. But we got them. You know, we see that advertisement on TV or something where that, you know, lean, mean guy or that curvy woman is up there and we're thinking, man, I need one of those because I need to be like that. So you buy one and you have it in your house. But I'm telling you, if you don't get on that thing, if you don't exercise self-control in what you eat, if you don't diligently work out, you aren't going to get that way. Just having the equipment doesn't make you in shape. Well, when you become a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit, don't you? And God commands you. Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The problem is, is just because the Holy Spirit's in you, just because you have the Holy Spirit resident, you have to choose to walk in the Spirit. You're never going to get spiritually fit and grow in sanctification in the power of the flesh. You can only do it by walking in the Spirit. And so how do you do that? Well, basically, it's just by trusting and obeying God. It's by understanding God's will for you through His Word, trusting in that as the way to live, and then pursuing that with a pure heart. 
So you are sanctified by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The fifth thing is, is by submitting to and following the Word of God. We already mentioned this. The Spirit inspired God's Word. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, right? And so you'll never, you'll never grow in sanctification if you're going contrary to the Word of God. Because the Spirit always goes with the Word. The wind of the Spirit never blows in the opposite direction of the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired by the Spirit, and so if you are contradicting the Word of God in your life, if you are disobeying the Word, you are not walking in the Spirit. The Spirit never empowers you to rebel against God. And so you need to know that as you are pursuing God through His Word, then God will build into you this ever-increasing righteousness, which is called sanctification. A good text that I like on this is 1 Peter 2.2, 2, where Peter tells his readers this, listen, to be like newborn babies, to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now just think about this. Some of you have had babies or have babies or know people who have babies. And those newborn babies, they, they got to eat. And they eat all the time. And some of you are trying to stay awake because you were up three times last night feeding a newborn baby. You know just how difficult it is to keep that baby fed. They eat all the time. Every two, three hours, they're, they're always eating. Now, what's interesting here is Peter says, I want you to be like newborn babes. How? That you are to be always longing for the Word of God. Why? So that you can grow in respect to salvation. What does he mean by that? So you can grow to be saved? No. So you can grow in sanctification. That's what he's talking about. That is how you grow in respect to salvation. You become more like Christ. Notice that it takes a constant, a constant input of the Word of God in your life so that you can grow that way. You quit feeding a baby, they die. You quit feeding a Christian the Word of God, they die. They shrivel up. So the Word of God is the primary means of spiritual growth in your life. Here's the sixth thing about sanctification by grace. You are sanctified by grace when you ask God for help in prayer. You know, what is prayer? Prayer is when you speak to God and ask Him for things that you know you can't get do on yourself, right? I mean, He has resources you don't have. He can change you, you can't. He can help you obey, you can't. In the power of the flesh, you can have victory. You can't overcome your sins. You remained enslaved to your lusts. But God, by His Spirit and by His grace, can help you overcome that. So prayer is an expression of our inability to do what only God can do. This is why the scriptures say in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now it's interesting when he says that, he says, By everything we are to be praying. In everything we are to be praying. At all times we are to be praying. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17... What does Paul tell the Thessalonians? Pray without ceasing. And just verses like that are convicting. I mean, there's, you never seem to be able to pray enough. 
And it's not talking about just formal prayer. It's talking about having a conscience of God and talking with God and asking Him for everything, thanking Him for everything. And what's interesting is Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, "...in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving." And what's interesting about 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, is the very next verse says, in everything give thanks. And this is the seventh point. We grow in sanctification by giving thanks to God in everything. Everything. Not about everything, but in everything. You don't thank Him for evil. You don't thank Him that you just sinned. But you thank Him in everything. That is, every circumstance in your life, you go to Him in prayer and thank Him for the resources that He has provided. Now think about this. When you have a victory in your life, or when you suffer a trial, when you get hired and get this great job with a great pay, or when you get fired from a great job with great pay, you know God is sovereign. You know He controls all things, don't you? You know that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And you know that He is the one who has declared the end from the beginning, that history is in His hand and nothing has ever happened to you which He does not allow, and that if He allowed it, it is for your good and it is for His glory. You know that. And that is why, no matter what happens to you, you must give thanks in everything. Because when you thank God, what are you doing? you are acknowledging that He is sovereign and that what you are experiencing right now in your life is His will for you, for your good and His glory. Now let me just ask you this. Do we save ourselves? No. Can we sanctify ourselves? No. Do we give ourselves everything we need for life and godliness so we can progress in sanctification? No. Did we give ourselves the Holy Spirit? No. Did we give ourselves the Word of God? No. Do we pray because God needs us to pray? No. We pray because we need to pray to God. And finally, do we thank God because of what we do? Or because of what he does? Because of what he does. Now notice this. If all of these things that I've just mentioned, all these seven things, are all given to you by grace, that means you don't deserve it. These things are given to you and you don't deserve it. You are unworthy of them. There's nothing you did to earn them. You didn't ask for them. They were all given to you. All these means of being sanctified are all given to you then, if you are appropriating them, who is that from? Where does the change come from? It comes from God. Why? Because you are merely using the things you have received by grace. Now, let me ask you this. Let's just say that you weren't saved. Could you be sanctified? No. Let's just say you didn't have the Holy Spirit. Could you be sanctified? No. Let's say you tried to be sanctified in the flesh. Would that work? No. What if you didn't give thanks? Could you be sanctified? No. What if you didn't read the Word of God? No. What if you didn't pray? No. You see, when you appropriate those things, those graces of God in your life, that's what God uses to change you, to make you into a new creature, 
to cause you to be perfected in holiness. Sanctification is by grace, not by works. The only way you can be sanctified is by using those things which you didn't deserve that you received from God when you were saved. Now, all that is introduction. And it would be great to get into the text today. The question is this. Paul says in verse 3 that these hypocritical lie speakers are those who teach doctrines of demons such as men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, you ask yourself this. Those don't seem too bad. I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, human sacrifice or anything. I mean, we all abstain from foods at various times. At least we should. Now, what, what's the big deal about those? I mean, so you don't get married. So you don't eat certain foods. I mean, what, what's the problem with there? How come... How come he puts those down as doctrines of demons? How, how can those things be damning? How can those things lead to apostasy? And that's what we're going to have to find out next week. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we are able to celebrate communion together. We are thankful that we are able to at least get a running start on our passage. Father, we know that you have given us what we need and, Father, that we need to use your resources in the process of sanctification. And if we don't, we are trying to be sanctified by works and that is unacceptable to you. Father, as we come back to the text, may we clearly see the hellishness of the two examples of demonic doctrines mentioned in the text, may we see why other things like it are so terrible. And Father, may you give us discernment that we might be able to spot both the error and those who propagate the error, that we might warn the flock, warn each other, and reject those people. May we not give them even a greeting as your word instructs us. And Father, we thank you for today and pray that as we come back this evening to worship you and hear some great testimonies of people who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we see all those little ones up here and their parents wanting to dedicate their children to you, may that spur us all on to be diligent to share our faith with those around us that they might come to know you too. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.